Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Laurel Starks with Keller Williams Realty in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Year to date, she sold 71 homes worth $30 million. Her average sales price was 428000 of which 30% were buyers and 70% were sellers. She has a seven-member team, one executive assistant listing coordinator, one contracts coordinator, one general manager, three sales agents, and one team leader. Laurel Starks is the team leader of the Starks Realty Group. She's been an agent for 10 years and specializes in divorce homes. In this call, Laurel talks about why she quit her job as an airline attendant and became a real estate agent, how she quickly became an expert at the sales contract, why she became a family law real estate expert and works with divorcing couples, receiving listing assignments from attorneys and judges, how she became a court-appointed expert, earning $350 to $500 per hour, consulting for attorneys and testifying in court what you need to do to become a divorce home expert, how to develop relationships with attorneys and judges, diversifying and building a traditional practice to expand her business, team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Laurel. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, Laurel. It's great to have you here. Laurel, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before I got into real estate, I was actually a flight attendant. I worked for Northwest Airlines, started when I was 22 years old, right out of college, and flew for 10 years for them. And um, after 9-11 happened, and then I had two little kids, it just came, it just, uh, came time to, to hang up my wings and stay grounded. So then I got into real estate. Why did you choose real estate? You know, it's funny. The airline industry, and especially flight crew, there is a very low turnover rate. They've got um, usually between 1% one, 1 to 2% a year turnover, and that includes retirement. So it's, it's not an industry that people get out of uh, very much. But of the ones that do, it's kind of funny. Flight attendants tend to go into real estate if they get out of flying. It's not an uncommon thing. Flight attendants also juggle real estate and fly at the same time. So I had some friends that had done that, and it still is working with people. It's still an industry where, you know, schedules are, um, it's not a nine to five, something different all the time. thing I like about real estate and kind of um, no pun intended, but but you know the sky is is the limit unlike um 
unlike when you're flying. So what I like about real estate is that you literally can, you can build anything as high as you want to go. And that's not something that is possible when you are a flight attendant for a major commercial carrier. Let's go back there for a minute. When you first got started, did you have a fast start or a slow start that first year? I had a slow start. My business has been a marathon. It's, it's not been a sprint. You said it's a marathon, not a sprint. What do you mean by that? When I got into real estate, you know, I, I honestly don't think I quite realized how, how, high, you know, how high you can succeed in the business. I had two little kids. They were um, two babies. I mean, my, my boys were one and three when I first started. And I started out, um, I think, just, you know, wanting to help supplement my husband's income and wanting to sell a few houses here and there. And I spent a lot of time learning the business. It was, it was a lot of responsibility to, to take and, and handle the sale of someone's house. Um, it's, a, it's a legal transaction. It's a big financial uh, transaction. So I really, I really saw it as, as a, I had a lot of weight on my shoulders. Um, and it was a big responsibility. So I spent a lot of time learning about real estate, learning the contracts inside and out, learning the market inside and out. So I, I really became an expert very early on. And I led, I, I led my lead generation, if you will, um, by, by being an expert in, in, the, in the business and then by teaching and educating. And I still do that today. I teach and educate my clients. So when you do that and you don't focus, you know, on the flip side, you're not focused on, you know, spending 80% of your time lead generating and maybe 20% of your time learning and doing the business. When you start out the way that I did, it's really a, um, it's a slower start. And that was fine with me. It served me well at the time, but there's nothing wrong with doing either way. But that's, that's how I, that's how I chose to do it after I got into the business and I saw how, uh, you know how high you can go and and how you can how you can succeed at a very high level and then the market turned and my husband's business started to started to um decline and then we actually needed the money you know it was it was something that i then really dove in with with both feet and it became a passion i don't think i realized as as when i started earlier how much of a passion it was going to become do you recall how many closings you had that first year? I think my first year, I probably had maybe a half a dozen or so. Not rookie of the year. <laughs> I know what I mean. <laughs> well, and you said, it's, you said it's a marathon. And for all those listening that are running that marathon, I, I want to give them some perspective. So that's kind of why we dove in there. Um, you said a couple other things that were interesting. You said you learned the contract really well. Uh, how did you do that? How did you dive in and dissect that contract? A lot of agents, they just fill in the blanks and they, they really never dive in. How did you go about diving in and learning the contract backwards and forwards? There was a class that I took. Um, it was offered here. It was, it was actually a really brilliant class, and I wish that they offered it still. But it was at a it was at a board, not my board. It was actually um, the Arcadia board for those of you familiar with Southern California outside of Pasadena. And it was a two week class, and it was taught by a gentleman who 
was a realtor and he was, I think he was in, in retrospect, I think he was sort of winding down his business. He was doing a lot more teaching. It was a two week class really on, on the contract and on, on real estate itself. It was sort of a two week boot camp, And in that class, we read the contract word for word 10 times, if you can believe it. And so that really laid a lot of groundwork. I only had a certain amount of perspective, you know, taking that class. I got that. I took that class right after I got licensed. So it was before any deals. So it really had a different perspective because I had not had any, any closings. I had not put my, the contract into action. So then as I started, you know, utilizing the contract, that class was long over. And after I started utilizing the contract, I enrolled, we have a mentorship program at Keller Williams. And my mentor, she walked me through the first four transactions and, and helped me through the whole, uh, the whole thing start to finish. And then I probably took some other contract classes down at the board. I just, I, I was, I was so blown away by how, by how important this contract was. You know, when I was a flight attendant, they flew us to Minneapolis to their corporate headquarters and we were sequestered for seven weeks. We went through a very intense flight attendant training and the bulk of it was spent on learning aircrafts and safety and evacuations and how to handle emergency situations. That was the bulk of the training. And so I, I guess I... I probably, you know, taking that was my only professional experience and then getting into real estate, it, it was very important for me to, uh, to really understand at a high level the, the risk, the liability, the responsibility of, of a real estate transaction. And by delving into that contract and reading it back and forth 10 times, it kind of outlines how the transaction is supposed to work. And it gives you a great basis and start into the business. I, I think that's fabulous that you, you took that route and, and you dove in there and you, you got so fortunate to have that instructor that walked you through for two weeks. Let's do this. Let's move forward. How long have you been in the business? I've been in the business for 10 years. One last thing, if you don't mind, Mike, I just want to wrap sure. that up. Because I became very, very familiar at very, very early on, it gave me a, a a huge advantage in representing my clients because I found that not all other agents that I was working against, you know, on the other side of a deal had the knowledge that I did. So even though I was a, a rookie agent, I was running circles around a lot of agents that didn't know what they were doing. So it actually served me well in my ability to represent clients because like you said, it provides a whole framework for the transaction. So I, I had a high level of knowledge with that. And, and not a lot, you know, a lot of other agents had been, had mastered lead gen, but they hadn't mastered the, the business itself and the contract. So it also gave me the confidence to lead generate and to, and to represent other clients because I had a, I had a really, really good confidence level on, on my, uh, my knowledge. So in any case, but uh, so moving forward, you asked me how long have I been in the business? 10 years is how long I've been in the business. I really like this topic of contract. So one, one other thought there, let me ask you a couple other questions per your, your knowledge on the contract. I assume that that means, by the way, and you can tell me if this is true or not, that when you are talking to your clients about 
the contract, either the contract to purchase or a listing agreement. You go into the details with them and kind of go maybe a paraphrase, a paragraph by paragraph, rather than just flashing in front of them and asking them to sign. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's a really good point you brought up because I do. I mean, I don't bore them and put them to sleep with it, but I've over the years I've gotten I've gotten a really good sort I've sort of melded into a really good cliff notes version of of what the contract means to them and and the certain bullet points that they really need to be aware of. So, yes, and and therefore I educate them throughout the process. And so anytime we have addendums or we have contingency removals or we have you know anything like that, we educate the clients on, as to what it is and what they definitely what they're signing. You know, it really makes my kind of my my hair stand up on end if I ever have a client that says to me that any one of my agents or my team members sent sent out a form without explaining it. That to me is is just kind of negligent, you know, irresponsible. A couple other things on that topic, and then we'll move on. But what I've discovered over the years is that when you take that time up front to walk through, say, the listing agreement and also the contract to buy and sell, what that does by taking that extra time up front, it makes the rest of the transaction much smoother because your client knows what to expect. Have you experienced that? Oh, absolutely. Setting proper expectations is huge. Definitely. And one other benefit I can think of, of getting that great knowledge in the contract, taking that time to explain it to your client, I assume you get a lot of referrals because of that, because they're, they know what's going on, they know you know what you're doing, and they're happy to tell their friends that this is a, a quality agent. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I would definitely agree. Now, how many years did you say you've been in the business? Ten. 10 years. Fantastic. And how many homes did you sell last year? We closed 52 units and that was about 23 million last year. Now you're on track this year to do a little better than that. How many homes have you sold so far this year and how many homes do you think you'll sell? Year to date, we have got 70 units closed by with if TRID um, cooperates with us a little bit, depending on TRID little monkey wrench that they threw in there. We should be, uh, we're on track to close 80 this year. Your 70 is probably what, around 25, 30 million? Correct. So we are currently at 29,577,000. So yeah, let's round that up to 30 million is, is current year to date. And then projected for the, to close out the year, we should be at 80, which is a total of 35 million, uh, just to crack over 35 million. That's a pretty big jump from last year to this year, about a 40% increase. What do you attribute that to? I attribute that to having a great team. And I have built up, and we'll get into it in a little bit, my niche became and still is handling real estate matters and family law cases. So we'll get, we'll get into that a little bit. But, but the bulk of my business had always been that for years and years. And so... I started building up the what you call the what we call the traditional side of my business. So you know, doing open houses, FISBOs, expired internet leads, uh, that type of thing, uh, is what I've for the last two years we've really spent time building up that side of the business. So my family law business has increased, but then also the growth and implementation of traditional business has is really what's responsible for it. Let's talk about where you're at so everybody gets a 
big picture. Where is Rancho Cucamonga, California? Rancho Cucamonga is, um, we are technically in San Bernardino County. We are about five miles from the L.A. County border. So our town, it is nestled right right at the uh, base of the San Gabriel Valley. So we're inland, if you if you will. We're we're inland. We're about we're about 45 minutes from everything. 45 minutes to the desert. 45 minutes to the beach, and 45 minutes to the mountains, and 45 minutes to Los Angeles. Describe your current real estate market. Our average price point right now for for my team, Starks Realty Group. Our average price point is 425. And our average days on market is 27. Our home prices right now, they're pretty much flattening out. They've, they have remained somewhat flat for the past, I would say, 12 weeks since the summer. We've, we've really flattened out. So it, also in the 700 and above market, We've we've definitely got longer days on market. There's somewhat of a of a tug of war going on in that market between sellers and buyers. We've got a lot of buyers that are not willing to pay as much as sellers are are demanding. So what's really driving homes in that market is sellers' motivation to move. So if we've got some sellers that you know that don't absolutely have to move, then they're really holding steady and fast on their prices. New home builders that are coming in, the bulk of our new home builders in town are 700 and above. So that's also a lot of competition for, for that price bracket. But, you know, entry-level homes here in Rancho Cucamonga, you can get an entry-level home for high threes, but, but mostly low fours. And that market is still moving pretty well. Good. So are you working the entry level of your market? We do it all, uh, frankly. I cover quite a wide area, and the reason why we are not, you know, I'm not a geographic farm. That's never been the business model. I, I'm appointed to to cases in uh, in court, family law cases. And so those cases, I mean, you know, our our highest price this year was sold at 1.9 million, and then our lowest price. Um, I've actually got a, a listing appointment this afternoon for a, like a $39,000 condo. So we do everything, you know, we do whatever the court assigns. So we don't really have control over, um, over our average price point as far as the team's concerned. Let's talk about your lead generation. And, and one of your niches that's quite unique is that you're working with attorneys and family law. What percentage of your business is coming from that source? My percentage this year is 55% that's come from family law. That is down. And, and actually, believe it or not, it's a good, that's a good thing. But that is down by a about 25% from last year. And so even though it's down in terms of business sources this year for us, it's actually increased. So the number of units of family law have increased, but percentage-wise, it's gone down because the traditional side has been building up. Does that make sense? Sure. 
Help us out. Most of us have not dealt in that area of real estate. You said court assignments and lawyers and so forth. First of all, before we describe how that works, just tell us why did you decide to go that direction? Why did you decide to start working with attorneys? So remember, I came out of this intense real estate, you know, boot camp, if you will. So I considered myself an expert at at the contracts and at the process. And so my first deal was actually a listing that I had gotten from an open house. So my, well, actually I represented my parents on their purchase. That doesn't count. But my first real, real deal was um, I did an open house and these people came into the open house. They wanted to buy that house and they wanted me to list their house. So I represented them on all of that. And, and it was a, uh, it was a, I was excited. I had these two deals and I had figured out how much commission I was going to be making. And I sort of, you know, in my head, I spent the money. The whole house of cards came crashing down. The market started to shift right when I got this listing. And the clients actually fired me. So the deal never went through. And they kept saying to me over and over, they kept saying to me, you know, we don't have to sell. I mean, we'd like to, but we don't have to sell. And at the same time, I'm doing all of the things that that they teach us in school, which is, you know, open houses, we did brokers open. So I spent all this money on, you know, having a big spread for my, you know, for my fellow agents. And I poured everything I had into this listing and it didn't sell. They fired me after three months. They relisted it with another agent and it sold for more money two weeks later. So it was like your typical rookie nightmare scenario. <laughs> um <laughs> And so shortly thereafter, I got a phone call from an attorney friend of ours. And he called me one day and he said, I got you appointed to sell a house in a case. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, the court has um, ordered the parties to sell the property and they've ordered them to list it with you. And so I thought, uh, you know, oh my gosh, I don't even know what this means, but it sounds really good. And as he's on the phone with me, he was on his way back from court, as he's on the phone with me, in beeps his client calling me. And she said, her name was Esther Saldana, I'll never forget. Esther Saldana, she called me and she said, is this Mrs. Starks? And I said, well, yes, it is Mrs. Starks. <laughs> and she said, um, I, you know, I, you've just been appointed to sell my house and I need you to come over to sell it. I need, we need to, I need to move because my son is to start school in Oregon in 30 days. So I need this house to be sold and we need to, to move, um, move up there in time for him to start school. So I went over to her house and the house was a complete and utter disaster. It had had a blood, a pipe had burst. And so it flooded, flooded her whole everything to have the the carpet was still kind of damp she did not have a penny to her name she had never worked a day in her life and her ex-husband was not paying her any support so she's waiting for money from the house to to be able to move and to carry on about her life and because they had had this pipe burst they couldn't afford to even hire anybody to come and and like properly dry out the house so you can imagine um, this house was not a nice house to begin with, but then you add that to it, and it just had, I mean, 
the kitchen was a mess. It was missing drawers and, and everything else. Uh, when you walk in the front door, there was no furniture, but there were boxes floor to ceiling because she was already boxed. So it's not what they teach you in real estate school, right? It's not like where you walk in and you've got these, you know, Tom and Mary Smith have, have been spending the last six months preparing their house just right for sale. This was not that case. You know, it was not a case like that. So we had to deal with what we had. She had no money to do anything to, to make the house work any better. So we really had to sell it as is. And I contacted her husband, ex-husband, and told him that I needed to um, meet with him so that we can go ahead and get this listing going. And he said, over my dead body, I am not signing anything. My ex-wife wants to take my son away from me and move up to Oregon and hell will freeze over before I allow that to happen. So he told me to pound sand and he wouldn't take any more of my calls. And so this was the introduction, my introduction actually into, (laughs) into family law. And it pretty much paints the picture for what a typical case looks like. So I had to work with, with the, with the attorneys and I had to work with the court and I had to basically navigate this thing. She was an emotional wreck and, and he was as defiant as they, you know, as they get. Whenever we went to court, he brought his girlfriend who he had an affair with her on, uh, affair on her with. So, you know, he would, they would go into court. She would bring the son. He was 12 years old and he's watching his parents duke it out in court and then the father has got this and she looked like a bimbo and they would like French kiss in the halls. I mean, it was just kind of this crazy situation. And so that's, that's really what, that was my first case. And believe it or not, I loved it. I realized in that moment how important the right realtor is. And I realized in that moment, the ability that we have as realtors to help people who are going through a time like this. And we can either add fuel to the flame and make it worse, or we can do our job, be professional, diffuse the conflict, remain neutral, and set these people up for the best success possible coming out of this nightmare. So therein lies my my introduction into the divorce real estate business. And I've it just became my passion right then and there with the Saldani case. The way you were lining up that story, my question was going to be why you decided to move forward, but it sounds like you really enjoyed getting in there and helping to create a resolution. Did you get that house sold within the 30 days? It took a little longer than 30 days, but not much longer. We got an investor to buy it and she was, she was able to move and she got her son was able to start school in time, she sent him up to live with her sister, you know, a week or so before she, before she got up there. But, but yeah, I did, you know, and it's interesting because Esther came back down to see me. She stayed in touch with me and, and she's come back down a few times. And whenever she does, she pops into the office and I've seen her over the years and she's just, she's a different person. I mean, you see what somebody's going through and they're walking through hell and and then to see them after they've after they have started their new life and they've planted some roots and 
they've taken maybe all the lessons that they learned. It's it's a new beginning. And she just, she's an amazing person. And she, she looks, she looks, you almost don't recognize her. She looks, she looks so peaceful and content and happy. And, and she always reminds me of how I, I played a part in that. And so, um, I don't always get reminded like that, you know, from people, but somehow with her, it, it helped me really, it helped really frame the purpose of the work. And it became sort of a ministry, frankly. It sounds to me like it takes a lot of time, a lot more time than just listing a property and doing the marketing and going through the typical negotiation. You're also dealing with the court and these parties that are at odds with each other. It sounds like that would take a tremendous amount of time. Is that true? It is, definitely. Do you get paid more than on a typical transaction to help compensate for all that additional time? I do not discount my fees, so we've got a lot of discount agents around here. If if you want to look at it that way, yes, I do get paid more because I don't discount my fees. But in terms of um, charging a premium, I have played around with that a little bit throughout the years, and and what I've found is that you know in the beginning when they have to choose a realtor and when attorneys are are looking to, you know, recommend realtors or the court is looking to appoint realtors, it, you know, oftentimes they sometimes succumb to the fact that they go with the cheapest one or they will go or they will not, you know, they will not pay a premium. So I didn't want to lose the business over overcharging, you know, premiums. That said, after I got into the business, you know, this is 2000, by now it's 2006, the market is starting to turn and 2007, the bottom falls out here in Southern California and it becomes a short sale market. And at that point we're getting paid by the bank. So the discussion of commission really wasn't even something I had for several years because it was all, it was all distressed and we were paid by the bank. Um, So, then once the distressed market sort of flushed out and we've gotten into um, into an equity or a traditional market, well, since two, about 2012 is when that started happening. And so then, yeah, sure. I mean, we've got, we've got commission, dis, you know, commission discussions all the time, but I'm in a market where most agents discount their commissions. So if you ask, if you ask my clients, yes, they're paying a premium. You've thrown out a lot of terms and ideas for us. Assume that we're a novice. We have no idea how this works because that's the fact for most of us. Could you walk us through how the the procedure happens in, in these divorce cases and the divorce real estate and how you come into the picture, who brings you into the picture, and then how you flow through the transaction? So you gave us a great story here about Esther, but can you get us into some more details about how that process works and how you fit into that process as an agent in case an agent listening wants to go after this market? Sure. So first of all, I would advise any agent going into it not to look at attorney business as, as a really good lead generation machine. While that may be the case, 
it's not what you should lead with. So number one, these cases are complex. Oftentimes you've got complex title issues. You've got people who haven't made payments. You know, there will be liens. I mean, we've got a case right now. There are two bail bonds liens that have made the house upside down and the mortgage is also in arrears and the mortgage company and the bail bonds company are fighting over who gets to foreclose on the property right now. So this is something we're kind of dealing with. In addition to the fact that I've got the husband is incarcerated. So, you know, we're dealing with like, this is, this is not uncommon to deal with high complex cases. So number one, no, you know, ask yourself if this is really something you want to get into, because it sounds really sexy to say, you know, I'm a court appointed expert. I get a lot of attorney referrals, but what I would do is start with the guts of it and see if it's really something you, you really want to do and that you've got the bandwidth for. They're not quick sales. A lot of times, even when they're completely, you know, not upside down or there's no financial distress, the high conflict in a case can slow it down. So most of the time you've got somebody who wants to sell and you've got somebody who doesn't want to sell. And so navigating through that is time consuming. And it's something that, you know, as the realtor, you've got to be, you've got to have the patience for, you've also got to have the, you know, be cognizant of this, that, that you're the neutral. And so understanding truly mastering to the extent that we can mastering neutrality and and the perception of bias is something that you, that really is the cornerstone because neutrality and bias or non-bias rather and the perception thereof is really what drives um is what drives a divorce expert and that's not just in for realtors that's also the case you know in, in family court, they they hire experts for their for in, in other aspects of the case. They'll hire a you know a forensic accountant who's who's a neutral third party. They'll hire a psychological evaluator for the children who's a neutral third party. So when you're working in cases like this, and to be an expert like that, regardless of your field, it's something that that neutrality and bias is is really the cornerstone of. So number one before just jumping in and putting together mailers to send out to divorce lawyers, I just would preface it by saying that, that they're complex, that they're messy, that you're dealing with a lot of people who, um, who are, who want to work against you, who's, who's, who are very purposefully working absolutely against you. I mean, you're not always liked by everybody. So that's kind of a peek under the hood of, of what it's like, like a day in the life of, also, and it, it sort of helped, I didn't obviously know I was going to get into the real estate business doing this, but it helped to have been really an expert at, at the contracts and at real estate. So, you know, you get presented with a lot of really complicated situations and you've got to come up with a solution. You've got to advise them properly. I get lawyers that call me from court a lot of times because they want to make orders and they need to be able to advise their clients or to to construct an order, you know, accordingly. And so they'll ask me my advice on how to do that. I do some forensic work for them. So knowing real estate really, really, really well 
is something that you'll also need. So being an expert at real estate and becoming educated and mastering neutrality are are the two biggest fundamental pieces to to handling divorce in real estate. Could you walk us through how one of these things starts up? Sounds like there's a divorce. The parties decide that a piece of property needs to be sold. But then you mentioned that the parties could select the agent, the attorney could select the agent, or the judge could select the agent. Is that true? I mean, which one do you see the most? I see all three. The first line of defense is always if the parties can agree to something. Most of the time, unless it's like illegal, if the parties can agree to something, then then the attorneys and the and the court are not going to step in and override that. So if the parties agree to have the wife's sister list the house, or they both agree to have the neighborhood realtor that they've all come to know, you know, or something like that, if they agree on a realtor, then there's a good chance that you know, that that's going to be, you know, option A. So if I don't already know them, which is not normally the case, I mean, I don't market to, to the end user. I don't market to divorcing parties directly. You know, that subset of, of business I'm typically not involved in. So I get involved when they can't agree or if they just don't know anybody. They're like, you know, I don't know anybody. I don't care. And so then the attorneys will say, well, I know, you know, I know Laurel Starks and I would recommend her. Or maybe one party has a recommendation. They really want somebody, but the other party refuses to agree. So if the parties don't agree, then the second line would be if the attorneys can can agree on a realtor. That's where I come in a lot. And then the third would be if the parties don't agree the attorneys don't agree, then they have to put it before the judge, and then the judge will make a decision on who's on the case. And you mentioned earlier that there's a, a concept or term of a court-appointed expert. Is that a, a label that you have or a title that you have? And is it a list that the the courts have? And if so, how did you get on it? In California, there is the Family Code Section 730, and a 730 expert is, is essentially an expert who is appointed by the family court whose duty is to the court before the parties. So when I'm appointed under that civil code section as a 730, my duty is actually to the court. So number one, it depends on how, how I'm brought into the case. I'm not always appointed as a 730. But, but to get on that list, there's not exactly like a course or a certification or something like that. It's just become over time. I've proven myself. I know mo- I've been appointed in most, most of the judges' courtrooms, you know, here in Southern California. So most of the judges know who I am. They know that I'm an expert and they have no problem appointing me under that. So it's sort of something that you really work your way into. It's not how you start. You don't start out wanting to become appointed. I think it's over time after you have been multiple times and they've they've heard you and they've seen you, you know, time and time again in their courtroom, then they will appoint you as a 730 expert. But and you've got to have the resume for it. You've got to have a resume that, that the court is going to recognize as an expert. It sounds like you you built up that resume by being appointed by attorneys first, then you were appointed in multiple courts. The judges 
noticed that that was occurring and watched you proceed in their court and were impressed. And then they, they kind of created their own individual lists in each court that the people that they'll turn to when they need, a, in your case, a 730 expert, you've just gotten kind of on their personal list. So there's no formal list in the court system. It's more judge by judge. Is that correct? Yeah, here, here locally, whether or not in other, you know, courts across the country, there's maybe something more formal, I'm not sure. But here locally, that's, you're right. That's, uh, you just described it. Let's talk about how you got in front of the attorneys or how you stay in front of the attorneys to, to get, you know, the business side of this thing, the, the referrals from the attorneys started, and the assignments from the attorneys. You told us how the first one happened, kind of happened by fluke, a family friend. Is that how they've all happened, or did you put a formal process in place to, to multiply this to, to multiple attorneys? What I did is I really just became, and this is, again, why it was a marathon and not a sprint, and this, this niche it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Attorneys get marketed to a lot. They hate being marketed to, and you know, realtors are a dime a dozen to them. It really is about getting into relationship with them and being able for them to, to recognize you as that. I mean, it did help that I had a friend who appointed me to my first four cases. So when I did that, that gave me, and it was kind of all at once before the Saldana case closed, he had me appointed to something else. And, you know, I think at one time I was juggling, you know, all of them at once. So it, that really gave me a good sort of immersion into the community, the family law community. But then I just became really a student of their, of their world. And it became my one thing. It was, it was really all I did to nurture the relationships and to really learn their language and learn their culture because they've got a different culture than the real estate community does. That took a while, you know, it really did. It took a while. And Hence my my marathon. You know, I I didn't abandon the niche. Meaning, when when the market shifted here, a lot of agents became REO agents. So agents here who had like a geographic farm, or you know, had their sphere of influence, or however they normally got business, a lot of them abandoned ship and became became REO agents. They got relationships with asset managers and did phenomenal business over, you know, a three to four year period in, in REOs. I never did that. I stayed the course and I continued to service my clients because they needed me. I mean, I was, you know, at that point it became a big short sale. My, my divorcing clients were going through short sales. So I really mastered that when no one else wanted to do short sales. And I really mastered it so that I could continue to service my kind of farm, if you will. And I spent a lot of time really understanding short sales at a high level. And then I taught short sales all up and down the state of California to realtors because I, I never had less than a 92% success rate in my short sale approvals. So I got really, I was really good at it. I had a hundred percent for a really long time. And then I lost my first one that really upset me. <laughs> But I, I became, you know, really, really um, much of, a, of an expert in that, which just raised my level of expertise to the, to the family law community. You know, I've been listening to you for a while here, and you talk about helping these clients, the, the need that they have. 
And a term keeps popping in my head, and that is that you're working in social work real estate, social work real estate. You're helping these people solve these social problems, kind of like a social worker. Do you picture it that way? You know, that's a good way to put it. And I was a sociology major, not a social work major, but a sociology major. And so there is an element there is an element that is fascinating to me and that that truly does come from wanting to help wanting to help people. I see I see how so many people tend to get into this business and I see a lot of realtors who don't really recognize the position that they're in to to really tee up these people for for a successful launch into their into their new beginning. And so it's always been something that sure, I mean I've I care very deeply about it. That's something it's something that really drives and fuels kind of my my big why. I wrote a book called Divorcing the House and it comes out January of 2016. It's published by Unhooked Books, which is a family law book publisher. And it's a book written to divorcing parties who are homeowners. And so it's sort of everything that I wish I could have told my clients or divorcing parties that I will never have an opportunity to meet, but, but stuff that I think that they need to know. So it's, it's a book uh, written to them. I think it's something that realtors can read. It's not a book to realtors on how to get into this business and how to do this business. It's not designed for that. However, I think it's going to be, it would be very informative for realtors to, to read it and probably to, you know, realize some things that we are as realtors are in a position to help that maybe a lot of realtors didn't realize that they were, that they were in that position. We've got a lot of knowledge as realtors and we're, we're really in a unique position to put it, put it to use. And family law is one of those places. The other thing is, I've got something called the Divorce Real Estate Institute that is begun and I'm going to be teaching throughout. I've taught, you know, my whole real estate career, many, many things. And so one of the things I'm going to be doing is teaching other realtors how to get into this business on a very deep level. I mean, it's so much, there's so much more than I can sum up here in a phone call, but, but it's, it's really how to get into the business and then how to set up your business to to be effective in it how to be that expert and break down those the walls or the curtain if you will to get into into family law attorneys offices how to get into the courts and then what to do once you're there and how to really put our expertise as realtors how to infuse that into the family law community my goal really is to be able to is to take my knowledge that I've that I've learned over the last 10 years and put it into use so that as many as many divorcing families can be helped and benefited throughout the country as possible. Is the Divorce Real Estate Institute is that up and running right now? Is there a website that people could go learn more? You know what, stay tuned for probably probably with by the end of the year it will be it will be up and running. It's it's in the design phases right now. The, the actual website is in the design phases right now. I've got most of the curriculum written for classes, but right now my, my biggest focus is my publisher has me pretty busy on getting the book, getting prepared for the book launch date. So uh, that's kind of taking up a lot of my time at the moment. But yeah, it should be coming up and I can send you that link when it's going to be, when it's ready. 
Do you have the website domain name registered? It is divorcerealestateinstitute.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. That's fantastic. And that's for an agent that wants to learn how to get into this business that we're describing of working with uh, divorce situations and attorneys and courts. Now, you also mentioned you had this book, Divorcing the House, and that's really more aimed at people who are in the middle of the situation, the parties themselves that are getting the divorce to help educate them. And I could see how an agent who's doing this kind of work would maybe want to have 20 of those books right next to them to hand out two at a time, I assume one to each party, to help them maybe understand the process and get through it. Is that how you envision it? Absolutely. So it's a great tool for realtors to learn you know, you're sort of sitting on the sidelines listening to me talk to my clients is really kind of what, what, the, what, you, what it will be like when you're reading the book. So it's sort of a shadowing of, of that, if you will. So you'll get a lot of great content, a lot of good information for yourself when you read that book. But then the other piece of it too is absolutely, it is a great, it is a great tool to give to your clients and to even give to attorneys, you know, law offices. I want to keep talking about this topic because you have a unique niche and it's very interesting. I want to dive back in just a couple more details here. You mentioned you were working with attorneys. How many attorneys are you currently working with? What I mean by that is how many of you kind of have in your pool that you work with over time? I've got over 200 that are in my immediate database, you know, that I know, that I've worked with, that I've come across, you know, somehow... And, you know, and maybe they've referred me cases throughout the years, one or two and whatnot. I've got about 112 that I regularly speak to and service at any given time. And, and it's not, you know, let me also be clear that it's not simply that I get the listings from them, which, you know, that I do. But it's, it's also they hire me as an expert. So they pay me an hourly fee to to consult with or to testify in in their cases on the bench. Wow! So you're actually getting up there on the stand in front of the judge, and you're you're talking about real estate, and you're getting paid for that. Yeah, of course, right. And don't you get paid really big, giant dollars for doing that? Expert fees can run anywhere from three fifty to five hundred an hour, and that's just for the time you're on the stand. Or does the, do you also get compensated for your preparation work? Get compensated for preparation, research, as well as travel time to and from court and waiting in court too. How much of your time is taken up by doing the testifying and and the consulting? In terms of actually testifying and being on cases, you know, I would say probably. 10 hours a month is about how long I spend on that. On consulting attorneys and consulting in cases, that's about another 10 to 15 hours a week 
that I spend on that. Not all of them, and I kind of get a little bit lazy. I don't charge them for all of that. I definitely charge when I'm when I'm testifying. In terms of consulting, it depends on the attorney. If it's an attorney that I've worked with for years, they send me a lot of business. You know, they call me. They've got questions about this and that. They want to make sure that they have thought of everything or, you know, run scenarios past me. You know, in all honesty, I don't charge them. Um, I don't charge a lot of time for that. You mentioned that you have a pool of about 200 attorneys, about 112 that you speak to regularly. How did that pool come about? Did you just add one at a time as you met attorneys in the court, or did you add 10 at a time? So how did that come about? How did you develop the database? It just came about really organically is, is how it came about. I also lecture to attorneys and get, I do, I'm, I'm approved through the state bar to give continuing education to attorneys, family law attorneys and judicial officers. And so judicial officers is a term here in California. We have for um, judges, judges and commissioners. We have, we have judges and we have commissioners. And so they're sort of the parent term for that is judicial officers. So it is organic. It's just through, you know, getting appointed and, and meeting people through through swimming in the pool that I do. But it's also through my education because I, I lecture um, to them several times a year. So I've got a lot of attorneys that call me, you know, that know me that I uh, that that I've not heard of before. When you go out and do one of the lectures, do you take the roster of the students in the class and add them to your database? I do if I have the roster. Yeah, sometimes the bar, depending on uh, they've got you know they've got funny rules about about utilizing their their members for um, you know I don't want to spam them right you know utilizing the the bar association um, events as you know turning into like a um, I, I would get in trouble for that. So it depends on the on the type of event. So uh, and if they even give turn over the roster to me, because a lot of times they don't. They handle all registration. I don't even I don't even get it. But yes, sometimes if I if I can, then definitely. And I call them and thank them for coming. And if they have any other questions and you know those types of things, sure. Laurel, are you an attorney? I'm not. When you first started working with attorneys and you dove into this market, did you ever feel intimidated by working with attorneys? You know, like worried you might make an error and get sued? I did not. By the way, as a 730 in California, there's a certain amount of immunity that you have, which is kind of convenient. But not that I would ever, you know, commit anything malpractice. But, uh, you know, I didn't. I learned early on that... Even as a new realtor, believe it or not, even as a new realtor, I learned early on that I knew more about real estate than any attorney or judge I've ever met. So I became very comfortable pretty early on with it. I, I would say I probably felt a little bit like, you know, this, we think attorneys know everything and judges know even more, right? And and then shortly after I got into it, I realized that, you know, they know their expertise is in the law and in family law. Family law attorneys have to know a whole lot about a bunch of stuff. They've got to know about criminal. They've got to know about child psychology and 
you know, children. They need to know about business, business valuations. I mean, imagine in a divorce how many business owners there are. So they've got to know about that. They've got to know about finances, retirement accounts. You know, there's just a broad, it's really a broad specialization family law is. So real estate is one facet of that. But they don't know real estate. I mean, they don't live and breathe real estate every day. So they don't, you know, naturally they don't know it as much as we do. So that was, again, something that I realized early on. And I became very, very comfortable pretty early on when I realized how much they relied on me. They do. They rely on realtors to know what we're talking about. Laurel, do you have any type of marketing plan that goes out to these attorneys, the 200 or the 112, or is it just that now your reputation is in the market and they just call you when they need you? Do you send out any mail pieces or emails or make phone calls or do anything to stimulate business? At Keller Williams, we have a thing called the 33 Touch Program. And so it's all about, you know, staying in touch you know, my job is to be is to be the sort of reporter of the news, if you will, on in family law. So, uh, you know, when it comes to real estate, so I keep them updated on stuff that they need to know about real estate. So, for example, we just had Trid has just come into our industry. Well, how is that going to affect a family law attorney? Why do they need to know about Trid? Well, they need to know that closing timelines are going to be delayed, that there's a good chance closings aren't going to happen in 30 days. So if they've got, you know, a case where maybe the house is in default and it needs to get sold quickly, they need to, they need to move sooner rather than later on getting the house listed because it can take longer. It's also to set proper expectations so that they understand, you know, if they've got certain timelines and and whatnot, on their end that, that the house, that the sale of the house is going to be delayed by, by a few weeks. They're used to writing subpoenas that say, uh, we're going to subpoena a, you know, a HUD one. Well, after October, HUD ones no longer exist in our business. So if they write a subpoena, wanting to subpoena a HUD one, it may not be an executable subpoena because now they've written a document that doesn't exist. So they need to go back and revise it. So, you know, things like that, I'm constantly updating them on, on things that they need to know. They need to know about the market. They need to know, you know, are prices going up, prices going down because husband wants to wait. You know, he's heard on the news that, that the home prices are going to be going down. So he wants to wait until the summer to, to list the house and, wife wants to just go ahead and get it over with now. So if attorneys are hearing from a neutral third-party expert what ha- what's happening in the market, then they're going to be in a better position to advise their clients. Stuff like that. How are you getting that information out to them? Are you sending out, say, a monthly newsletter with that information, or are you just doing it by word of mouth? All of the above. I keep stuff updated on my website. I send them things in the mail. I I call them and email all of the above. So when you send out the email, is it a is a blast email out to the two hundred, or are you sending out individual emails? It's a blast email to the two hundred. Are you contacting them thirty three times per year, or what do you think is your frequency in these more general messages that you're sending out to the whole group of attorneys and and so forth that are involved in this industry? Twenty. 
a year. Just under two a month? Yep. It's total meat. It's not fluff. It's, it's 20 because, uh, you know, it is, it's just straight up news. So there's no, like, reminder to turn your clock back kind of emails. That stuff goes out to my regular database. There's a, a current event. There's been a change. You, you talked about the tread change and the HUD change. Anything that's happening in the immediate market, it's a timely item that has maybe legal consequences. You get that information out to them right away. Yep, exactly. A question I'm sure that some of the listeners are going to be asking is, do you compensate the attorneys in any way for the referrals? No, absolutely not. We can lose our real estate license and they can lose their bar license for that. So it's down to the point where you know, I don't even send them a Starbucks card thanking them for the case because it's not that kind of thing is prohibited in their industry. Over the years that you've been working with all the attorneys, so they seem to be starting the process here and expanding, seems to be the focal point, your relationship with the attorneys. Over the years, what do the attorneys want from an agent? Like I said, the two biggest things are that we are experts in our craft, that if they get up and, and have to put you on the stand, that when they ask you your credentials, that you're going to be able to qualify as an expert, that you're not going to embarrass them or cost their client anything, and that you're going to be able to, you know, that you know the industry very, very well. So you've got to be a master at real estate. And then the bias, being completely neutral and therefore no perception of bias. I mean, I can be neutral, and I am, but sometimes I may say something funny or I may look at them funny or you know, whatever, and they all of a sudden think that I'm working for the other side. I mean, it's, it's and they just flip. So it would be being neutral and, and making sure that you're an expert at what you do. Those are... Those are the two biggest things. To wrap this section up, any advice for an agent who wants to to start working in this field, working with divorced clients and working with attorneys? I would say to stay tuned because I'm going to give a very, very in-depth class on how to do it. We're going to even take a field trip to divorce court, meet with judges in their chambers, have divorce attorneys um, help co-teach the class, psychologists, neutral child custody evaluators come and co-teach the class. It's going to be a pretty comprehensive certification class that will be coming out. And so I would definitely recommend it's not just, I'm not just saying that for, you know, to boost, you know, the attempt, but it's, it's truly going to be a class that you'll walk away from and have a very, very good understanding of what it takes to do this kind of work, as well as a, a marketing, you know, a comprehensive marketing plan and really know how to break through the, break through the, um, the barriers on, on how to really get into this and how to be seen as an expert. But I, you know, and I would also say, just know that it's going to be a marathon and not a sprint. Just to clarify, the class that you mentioned, class and certification, is this you doing this privately or, or is this, say, uh, under the National Association of Realtors? No, this is me doing this privately. I'm not, I'm not looking to be governed by anybody. 
Thank you for all the in-depth information you just gave us. Let's dive into a couple other areas that you're an expert at, at, at developing business. In your model, you have developed business from your past clients and sphere of influence. You said you put a little more focus on that over the last couple of years. So let's, let's dive into that. What percentage of your business is coming from repeating referrals from past clients and sphere of influence? My past clients and sphere of influence, hold on one second, let me pull up my spreadsheet here. It is currently 22%. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? My past client database is somewhere hovering around the six to 700 mark, last I checked. And then sphere of influence together, together combines about 1,500. Okay, very good. So about another seven, eight hundred in sphere, and about fifteen hundred total. How are you tracking all those folks? Do you have uh, some software to, that you're using to to keep them in a database? We're using a few different things. We're using Rivity is one place where we're keeping everyone, and then the other place is we use Constant Contact to send out all of our emails. So anytime we have a new client or we have you know, anybody from the sphere that we want to get added into, into, then they go into our Brivity database and then they also go into Constant Contact. The other thing is that, that 1500 is my past client sphere. Each of my team members has their own sphere as well that get folded into our sphere-based marketing. Brevity, did I get that right for the database? Correct, Brevity. It's uh, B-R-I-V-I-T-Y, Brivity.com, and it was, it's a software developed by Ben Kinney, and it is designed for realtors to use. It's a transaction management software as well as a CRM. So their CRM, their, it was originally designed as a transaction management software, and their CRM component to it has been consistently increasing and new features are getting rolled out, you know, every month. So the, that is what we use for transaction management as well as for CRM. How are you staying in front of your past clients and sphere of influence? Could you walk us through your marketing plan, say over the course of a year, and we're looking for, are you making calls or mail or email, kind of the big picture of the structure of how you're staying in front of people? We use the 33 Touch that was put out by Keller Williams, the inner real estate agent book. So we follow that. It's a proven method, proven model. And we, we just follow, we follow that, you know, to a T, you know, in all candor. I mean, those of us who get interviewed or are on stage, you know, there's kind of the stage answer and then there's like the real answer. So I'll give you the real answer. The real answer is that we have, actually been implementing the 33 touch program at the true level that it is designed to be implemented since April of this year. So other than that, it was sort of hit and miss stuff. We would send out, you know, a Merry Christmas email or Happy Holidays email or something like that. And we would send out every once in a while, I would send out a newsletter but in all honesty, you know, it, it, it was just really hit and miss. And we had also not been really good about keeping a, a, keeping a whole list of everybody in, a, in one really clean spot. So I hired a virtual assistant to track back all of our past, all of our past 
closings for the last 10 years and input them in and then go go through, you know, my my own database. And it's a chore. I would say any agent who's just starting, gosh, don't do what I did and kind of lose track of that, I would start and hold your database very, very, very close because it is a nightmare and painstaking chore to have to go back and resurrect all these old contacts that you had. So, so we've been doing it, you know, realistically, we've been doing it since April. So what it looks like is it involves three phone calls per year. And then we have about 28 pieces that are either emails or snail mail. And then we do two contacts that are around our, we're doing a pie giveaway for past clients. So um, that in and of itself is, is, you know, is a few touches right there, but we're doing that like a holiday pie giveaway that we're doing this year for the first time. Thank you for showing us the real answer. I hear that a lot. You know, we have an ideal and then we have what's been happening. And it's wonderful that you've been receiving referrals over the last several years without having a, a more formal plan that kind of, as you said, hit or miss. Let me ask this. When you converted to a more formal plan in April uh, this year, you now have six plus months of working that system. Have you seen a increase in the number of repeating referrals that you're getting? Yeah, we've seen 15%. So last year, last year, we ended out the year and believe it or not, I mean, I'm so embarrassed to even say it, but we ended out the year at 7% repeat and referral business that was not family law. So 7% that was repeat and referral and year to date, we're at 22. So, so definitely it works. You know, the challenge that I've had in my business and I've talked to some other people who are highly niched like I am. And the challenge has been implementing, you know, when, you, when you're so niched and you're so hyper-focused on what you do and you're, you live and breathe that niche every day, building a traditional real estate business is actually a new, you know, kind of a new concept. You have to learn all of that stuff. So I've never called Fizbo's expired. I've never done circle prospecting. I've done very few open houses in my career. Building a traditional side of the business to complement what we have now has been something that I have failed forward at. And this year, we've. Uh, that's why I'm actually really happy with the numbers that we are 45% traditional and 55% family law. And then I'm actually looking to reverse those numbers next year. So 45% family law, 55% traditional, and at the same time, doubling the business. So that's really the ratio that I'm looking for. I assume that the hyper niche in the family law practice has been successful and profitable. And the question then is, why do you even want to develop the traditional side? Good question. Because there is so much business that is that comes from the business, right? So in doing the family law piece, I mean, you know how many sign calls, thousands of, of sign calls over the years that have literally just gone unanswered or just, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I've not worked as a buyer's agent. And I've, I've always had two assistants. That's, I've always had two, 
you know, it's been me and two assistants. It was that way for years up until 2012. Uh, you know, we just, nope, sorry, we can't show you that house. Um, here's how much it is. If you if you want somebody to help you, then just find an agent, call somebody else to show you that house, right? Same thing with internet leads. I mean, we just, there's so much business that that falls by the wayside because we're not set up as an infrastructure. And at the same time, we've got agents, you know, people who get into this business that that want to, that would love to be able to, you know, to pick up our residual business. So there's missed opportunity on both parts. On, on, you know, there's three ways, right? There's a missed opportunity for, for my business. There's a missed opportunity for the people that need to have good representation for the clients. And then there's a missed opportunity for, you know, for realtors that can come aboard and join the team and have a successful, have a successful career. So that's why it's important to me to, to develop that, that side of the business. You mentioned your team that it, it used to be much smaller, just you and two assistants. Could you describe your current team? I've got an, an EA who she is responsible for handling all listing coordination. So um, that's her, that is probably what takes up most of her time is from the time a lead comes in, you know, a referral or a case or whatnot comes in, she, she handles that all the way until it gets into escrow. Now, what I do is I do the walkthrough and I meet with a, with a client in my office and then she pretty much handles, you know, everything else, staging and MLS and pictures, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then I've got, and then I negotiate the offers and then we get into escrow and then I've got a contract close person who she handles everything from the time escrow, she actually opens up escrow and then she handles everything contract to close, including, you know, like I told you, these bail bonds liens from contract to close. She handles all of that. She handles the um, short sale negotiations. She handles appraisal inspections, negotiations, you know, everything, contract to close. So those are the two um, admin. Now my EA, she also, in addition to doing the listing coordination, she also handles all of my books. So she's, she does bookkeeping. She handles any type of, she does, you know, coordinates open houses. She also handles any events that we're doing. So this pie giveaway, you know, she will handle that. She handles some advertising for us. So that's her role. And I've got three sales agents who are on the team and they handle, you know, uh, listings and they handle buyers. We're actually interviewing and going to be hiring an ISA here um, shortly to start the first part of December. And then I've also got a a uh, general manager who is who's a new position. She graduated from she was promoted from being a sales agent into being a general manager position. So really, her job and her one thing really is to build up that traditional side of the business so that I can focus more on continuing to do the family law, divorce, the divorce stuff, the institute, my book, that kind of thing. You mentioned EA. What does EA stand for? Executive assistant. We actually have a part-time runner who does, you know, runs out to the properties and does, you know, lockbox and that kind of thing. That's part-time. And then we also have a virtual assistant also who's part-time that does 
that does some data entry and things like that for us. So, you know, I guess technically you could say that that we've got those two additional pieces, but but in terms of full time, um, you know, like so for example, those other two, the VA and the runner, they wouldn't, you know, they don't come to our office meetings and stuff like that. You mentioned you have three sales agents. You're building your traditional side. How long have you had the three sales agents? I started building the traditional side July of 2013. And so we started with one. And then uh, last year we ended, we had two. And then this year we've got three. And there have been some that have come and gone in between in between that time period. Our goal next year and what we're set up for is to have is to net 12 sales agents by the end of next year. So we'll probably, you know, with um, you figure with certain amount of turnover, if you factor that in, we're probably going to need to hire somewhere between 15 and 18 in order to in order to net 12 by the end of next year. That is a real aggressive goal to have 12 sales folks running around. What is your big picture goal? Do you have a a certain number of transactions you want to close or a certain sales volume you're trying to achieve? Why do you need 12 people? Next year, our, our goals are 155 units. So that would be, um, have to do the math right. That would be 80 that come from the sales team and 75 that come from family law. So 155 units, 62 million in volume and 1.75 million in GCI is our goal for next year. So that's why we need that many people. The other vision, you know, the other, the other piece of that is that we are also expanding our team throughout the rest of Southern California. So out of the 12 sales agents that come on board, there are going to be some that are going to gravitate to wanting to do the divorce niche. And so out of those, then we're going to also build and expand it. So so ultimately, we will be, Stark's Realty Group will be servicing the family law communities throughout Southern California. And then I will also be teaching other agents throughout the country through the Divorce Real Estate Institute in how to how to do this business. So you're looking at having expansion teams throughout the Keller Williams system in other markets outside of your own that focus on the family law or the divorced homes. Is is that correct? Correct. Yep. You're expanding your niche. I like that model. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to hear how you do with that. That sounds fantastic. A question that we always get when we talk about teams and people setting up teams and you're in that process of building your teams, agents always want to know or team leaders want to know about compensation. Could you tell us how you've structured the compensation for your sales agents? Sure. So the compensation is as follows. When they first come on board, they go through a pretty intensive 100-day training program where they start out as ISA, inside sales agents. So they're handling like the inbound, you know, the inbound leads that are coming in. They're also doing open houses. They're calling through the sphere and database. We've got a huge database of, of clients right now in Boomtown, or not clients rather, but, you know, of, of uh, leads that are sitting in Boomtown. We've got several thousand that are sitting through them. So they will, you know, we call it the treasure chest. We've got a treasure chest of those that they'll call and call through. So for a hundred days, that's what they do. And the 
first 45 days, they're setting appointments for other sales agents on the team. They get paid $2,500 a month for the first three months. So there's, and in the first 45 days, they're setting appointments for the other sales team. Then the last 45 days, they're setting appointments for themselves so that they're building a pipeline. Once they come off of salary, then they're going to be able to not have, not experience a dip in income. They will be teed up to be able to, you know, produce right in, in their first month, have closings their first month. Then they will also be receiving leads appointments from the full-time ISAs. So the compensation is 35% on ISA, ISA if, the, if it was an appointment that was given to them, and then 50% if it's an open house or if it's one of their sphere or a lead that they procured. Is that the same for buyers and sellers? That is the case for buyers. For sellers, the split is 20%. So 20% if it was an appointment that was set for them. And then for their own, then it's 35%. Because listings are very, very leveraged in my business. I mean, you can handle three times as many listings at one time as you can buyers. Are you profitable? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, we hear so much about top line and how much how much people are making on the on the top line, right, of of their business and they get so caught up not focus as much on the bottom line. So, yes, I mean, fortunately, you know, I'm one of the rare one of the rare agents that I run at about a 45% profitability. That includes my salary, meaning my salary comes out of the 55%. We watch expenses very carefully, and we, at the same time, you know, we are listing heavy. I'm going to have to watch that as we, as we become more buyer heavy because there is a higher cost of sale on that. And I'm okay with the 45% going down so long as volume is increasing. You know, realistically, we might, once we're all built out, Based on my performance, we will probably be more at about a 35% profitability. But you know, 35% profitability on on 4 million GCI versus 45% profitability on 1 million GCI. I'll take the former (laughs) rather than the latter. (laughs) Sure. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you. Well, Laurel, what drives you? Oh, that's a good question. You know, what drives me is the is the potential. There is so much potential and I worked for so long in a union job where you know you just had these you had ceilings. And so I think every day I'm really awestruck by how much potential we can we can reach in this business. One thing is that just the possibility. Another thing that drives me is when I wake up every morning and I think about how many cases are being decided upon and how many people, lawyers, clients, judges, don't have the information that they need and they oftentimes don't know what they don't know. And people are going to have a rough post-divorce when they haven't gotten the proper counsel. So I cringe when I think about how many cases, you know, even as you and I have been on on this call right now, how many cases have been decided 
that could have had a better outcome if they if they had the knowledge that they needed to have. So really that what drives me is is getting that voice and that knowledge out there to as many people as possible. Laurel, why have you been so successful? I think it's because I've got it's because I've got my drive, <laughs> right? And, and it's a good thing, meaning I there's always there's always upward climbing to do. You know, there's it's almost like the summit just keeps getting higher and the floor just keeps rising below me. It's always being aware of how much more there is to do. And I don't look back very often to see how far I've come. I, I look ahead to see how much further there is to go. That's really, really inspiring to me to see how far we can keep going. So I think one key to success is not to become complacent, not to have any limiting beliefs that it can't be done because every single day you listen to, you know, interviews just like the ones that you do of what amazing things other realtors have accomplished in this business and how many lives they've changed. There's always a stark reminder of, of just how, how much we can do in this business. If you are going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would start on a team because when you start out in the market center, I just think it's a slower climb. You can do it, definitely. But when you when you start out in a regular market center, you don't necessarily get the the mentorship, the really close mentorship and accountability that you do when you're on a team. When you're on a team, you're you're kind of like this tight knit pack, and you have if you're on a good team, you have that accountability, the mentorship, the iron sharpens iron mentality. And so I would say I, if I had to do it all over again, I would have gotten on a team. I would have chosen the team very carefully, but I would have gotten on a team. The other thing that I would say is to have a coach, have somebody who can help you see through your own limiting beliefs. I have my coaching call every Monday with my coach, and I know that my activities that lead up to that coaching call that have gone on the prior week need to reflect where I'm going in that, you know, when I, when I have to report to him. And if I have to report to him that I've done things or not done things that are not in line with my goals, it's a humbling conversation to have. So I would, I would also say to, to get a coach. Do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Not only are they valuable, but in my opinion, this is one of the keys to success. Because, you know, when you get so myopic and you've been maybe calling on, you know, calling through your database and you've got a couple of escrows that have just fallen apart and you're, you're getting no, 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 and the door just keeps slamming in your face. And then listening to other agents just like this on how they have succeeded, it's a constant reminder of what's possible. And these types of calls and these types of interviews are the things that fuel and drive me in this business. When I, you know, I was really, really stuck in being really good at what I did and I still take pride in that. 
but at the same time in 2012, I really, my eyes were opened and it was due to interviews like these. And I was like, oh my gosh, there are agents out there that are doing phenomenal things. And if they can do it, then I can do it. So it has really been a game changer. My business, you know, this year, it will have tripled from 2012 to 2015. And it's a direct result of my exposure to high-level successful people. Laurel, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? I would say this business can be as small and as big as you want it to be. And there is a place for everyone in this business, whether it is working on a team, whether it's being in administration, whether it's being in sales, I would say finding whatever your passion is and what drives you is what I would advise, you know, advise anybody who's watching this to do. And really, you know, there is no silver bullet to this business, listening to highly successful agents talk about their success. There was not a a magic trick that made that happen. So I would say that if anybody really, you know, and I know, uh, fortunately, I've got some wonderful peer relationships and mentors in my life that are far exceeding what I've done, but are serve as my sort of as my inspiration to what I can do. So I would say that just removing those limiting beliefs and 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 knowing that you know if it's if it's possible really you can do it well laurel you showed us how you can do anything you set your mind to you became a court-appointed real estate expert without a law degree you help families resolve difficult divorce challenges and help build a launching pad for their future success you wrote a book to advise divorcing couples and created an institute to teach agents how to become divorce home specialists. You plan to mix the expansion model with the divorce real estate expert model to grow your business to a whole new level. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 240 homes last year worth $73 million. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. 
You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.